On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety. I'm your host, Mark. And I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their podcast essentials kit. It's got a wonderful Lyra mic and an incredible set of headphones. Mark Farner, formerly of Grand Funk Railroad, and currently heading Mark Farner's American Band is our guest today. His extensive career began after a football injury and learning a great technique for conditioning his brain to sing and play guitar at the same time. After his time in other bands were over, Mark co-founded Grand Funk Railroad and had a harrowing trip to their first gig at the Atlanta International Pop Festival, opening for Janis Joplin, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Sly and the Family Stone, and Led Zeppelin on their first gig. Mark also worked in the studio with Todd Rundgren and Frank Zappa and tells us how different those experiences were. Oh, and he died twice. He's very candid about the issues he's had in the past with Grand Funk Railroad, and how that led him to technically suing himself. He also tells me what a peener is. And he has a new live DVD out, and it helps support the Veterans Support Foundation. So go to markfarner.com for all the info and to find upcoming tour dates. Yes, actual tour dates. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. And if you like the show, you can send coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Shirts, mugs, Shower curtains and more are available at performanceanx.threadless.com. So put your dinner on hold because I did. Mark Farner is that good. Right here on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Mark Farner with a K. Mark with a K. And I'm on with Mark with a C for Performance Anxiety. Can you dig it? Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I really appreciate this. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm not even sure where to begin, because <laughs> there's so much career here. <laughs> so I do want to say that, uh, you know, congratulations, over 40 years of marriage. That sounds like a great place to start for me. Yeah, man. 43 years. My wife and I in October will be married 20. So we're, we're halfway there. So it's worth, it's it, worth it. <laughs> it is. It is, man. I, you know, I, I, I look at stuff nowadays. I'm like, Oh my, thank God. I found my wife. Holy crow, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> I call her my better three quarters. Oh, that's the truth right there. Yeah, it is. I know that <laughs> feeling. <laughs> so <laughs> I know a bit about you from doing the research and all, but I want to know, to, you know, to better understand where you are now, we got to go back to the beginning and I'm sure I'm going to be asking you questions that you've been asked, you know, thousands of times at this point, but matter not, I'll answer them a thousand more times. <laughs> Excellent. All right, man. Well, I appreciate that. I'll try to, to keep it interesting for you. I know it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not always easy to, to recount the same story. So I'm going to try to find some new, new things to ask you. 
All right. We'll see well, how good I, I do. For it. Yeah. All right. You can critique me at the end. So, <laughs> maybe that's something I should do on the podcast. I get a, have the guest critique me at the end every episode. How did I do? <laughs> so, I did read about your parents. I want you to brag on your parents a little bit because from what I have read, they're just amazing. So uh, please b- brag on your parents a little bit. Well, my father was a World War II veteran, a tank driver in the 7th Armored Division, and he made it through four major battles. He came home with four bronze stars. Wow. My mother was the first woman in the United States to weld on Sherman tanks at Fisher Body in Flint, Michigan, and that was, uh, of course, the tanks that our boys were driving were the, were the uh, Shermans. Yeah. And they were outgunned and uh, outmatched by the Panzers. Yep. Uh, and it would take three Sherman tanks to take out one Panzer. But by golly, they did it. Yep. Yes, they did. <laughs> and I, I got to give to you, my dad was armor uh, in, in Vietnam. Well, he, he, uh, he was a little late there. The, the war ended just as he was actually being called to to getting his orders to go over. So, you know, God blessed us. God bless him, man. Yeah, yeah man. And you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. He was, <laughs> my dad was first army. He was hell on wheels. <laughs> so, and you're part Cherokee as well, right? Yeah. Yes. My great grandmother was full blood. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And my wife is, is, I'm not sure exactly what. I'm not, she's from Alabama. So I, she told me at one point, but, uh, I can't remember. She's going to kill me when she hears this. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> and uh, they're all eating dinner in the other room and staring at me right now. So, yeah, uh, I'm going to uh-huh. get it after this. Uh-huh. So, all right. So let's go back to where we, where we were. <laughs> you were an athlete before you were a musician. Yes. So what was your, what was your sport of choice or did you have one? Were you just an all around athlete? football but i ran track too ah. and uh, did the broad jump and high jump and uh um and ran a hundred yard dash you know uh, okay yeah did you have any and, interest in music at that time because that was like what high school or it, yeah okay it was high school but uh it was ninth grade and uh, i was on the jv team the junior varsity team and we scrimmaged uh, the varsity team and they kicked our ass, dude. <laughs> I had water on the knee and a Ooh. fractured finger, and uh, thank God it was on my right hand. Uh, I could still pick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the teacher told my mother, or uh, the doctor told my mother that uh, I would no longer be able to play football or run track and. You know, not this year, he says, it's because he's too messed up. So she felt sorry for me, and she got me six lessons and rented an acoustic guitar. It was a K flat top. Okay. And it would have been a better uh, bow and arrow set. I mean, <laughs> the strings were this far away. You could have used it. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, after three lessons, he had shot himself in the foot. It was... Oh, God. Like literally shot himself in the foot yeah, with a 12 gauge shotgun. It was ring neck pheasant season in Michigan. It opened on October 20th back then. And he went out and shot himself in the foot and told my mother that I was just going to have to get the, 
on with uh, the band that was in high school where my sister uh, would hang out with these kids. Of course, she was 17 months older than me, and I'll never let her forget it either. But <laughs> <laughs> and, You're and, a good brother. Yeah. And her friends played music, and uh, but they didn't like to sing, and I, and I like to sing, and and uh, I was learning the chords from those guys, and that's kind of how it started for me. But before that, it, it was in my house every weekend. As a kid growing up, uh, we had jam sessions because when my mother moved from Leechville, Arkansas, the whole fam damnly came north, and everybody got jobs in the auto factories. Oh, okay. And, uh, Every Sunday, there'd be a jam session, violins, uh, banjo, guitar, my dad, blue saxophone, all the women sang, and it was the most beautiful music. And we were spoiled of that music every Sunday, either at our house uh, or my Aunt Dorothy's, my, my mother's sister's house. And okay. yeah, we'd have us a hold down and we'd have some Southern fried chicken and hockey puck dumplings uh, <laughs> or sloppy joes. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, between you talking and everybody bringing dinner over here, I'm starving. Uh-huh. Man, dinner's going to have to wait, though. Gosh. <laughs> It'll be worth it, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know it. When did you really start playing it with bands and, and deciding you wanted to do this professionally or how long of a gap and who were you playing with? Well, I was, uh, I was in summer school. I was having to make up some credit because, uh, I got, uh, expelled from the school for punching a teacher in the eye. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it was, it was a self-defense kind of thing. Yeah. He used to be the football coach, or he was a football coach. And when I was playing football, the team, the, our team was undefeated. Yeah. The, the guys that I hung with. But when I quit playing ball, uh, about half the team quit. And this teacher kind of blamed it on me, thought I was a ringleader or something. I don't know what goes through their minds. <laughs> but uh, uh, the Holy Rosary the kids from Holy Rosary spent uh, the last half of the day at our high school at Kersley high school. And, uh, the bus got there around noon and the kids were getting off the bus. And this teacher who was a football uh, coach says, Hey, Farner, move your boys. Cause uh, I had, you know, f- friends, we were all gathered around this heater. Okay. Uh, j- just for the heat of it, because you know, it's winter. Yeah. And, uh, and this guy uh, comes over and he says, I told you to move. I said, these are not my boys. And just as I'm telling him, they're not my boys. He grabs me by the shirt like this and throws me up against the wall. Well, my head ricocheted off this brass picture frame of the superintendent of schools. And I, I reached back and I felt wetness and, and he's got me like this. And, and I looked at the blood on my hand and I just, I let him have it. Boom. Down he went. Wow. And, uh, and he was getting up and throwing haymakers at me, but he, I unzipped his eyebrow and it, the thing fell down over his eye and he was having a hard time seeing. Yeah. It just, wow. yeah, he needed some stitches. 
but I I was ducking his haymakers. If he would ever hit me with one of those haymakers, he, he'd have probably, you know, knocked me through the wall. But he was missing, and I was every time I duck, I'm I'm coming back up thinking, should I hit him again? <laughs> yeah. And I drove back, and I'm gonna nail him this next time. And my buddy grabs my arm, goes, "Partner, you idiot, stop!" <laughs> He says, wow. you're in trouble already, you fool. <laughs> but, uh, wow. Yeah. Then, uh, and so I had to go uh, to summer school and I was telling my mom's stepdad one night, I said, you know, it's night school. And that's when I normally go and play. And I've been making my money playing music. And this is really hurting my style is cramping my style. And I said, I would go ahead and do this school if you want me to do it, you know, but right. for me, I would rather be making the money and learning more about my instrument and getting better at it, you know? Yeah. And, and they said, this is good. You just do what your heart's telling you to do. Wow. Yeah. I was lucky. <laughs> That's amazing. Man, I, I don't think my parents would have been that supportive of me if I had been in that situation. That's, they'd have been like, nope, you buckle your ass down and get back to school. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so is that when you were playing with uh, Terry Knight in the pack, or was that before? That was before. Okay. Was before. And, uh, in fact, it was just after I had uh, – I'd left the bossman that uh, I started playing bass with Terry and I in the pack. You got 16 phones, but you never take the time to call. Seven motorcycles that ain't been on the road at all You keep 12 airplanes that ain't had time yeah. And I guess I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this Because <laughs> now you guys fired Terry, right? It was, was, that, was that what actually what happened? Because I'm, yeah. I'm a little unclear on, on what happened there as far as the group, Terry in the pack, Terry Knight in the pack. Yeah. Yes. We fired him because between Don and I, we were doing more singing than he was. And we were doing a better job of it. Wow. Okay. And, uh, and we, we just said between ourselves, yeah, well, let's, let's make this break. But Terry then moved to New York city and made contacts there that were essential for us getting that first gig at the Atlanta Pop Festival, 1969. Right. So, so you're playing as, uh, was it turned into the Fabulous Pack after that, right? Yes, the Fabulous Pack. And was that, uh, was that a covers? Was that original? Was it a mix? It was, it was cover tunes. Okay. Uh, yeah. We, uh, we did, uh, it's a beautiful morning, you know, <laughs> songs like yeah. that and did things where, where people could get out on the dance floor and boogie. And, uh, 
it, yeah, it worked for us. Yeah, you, you got to play you with Willie Cooley and you know all the people who come out. <laughs> yeah, you got to play what the people want to hear. Get them out on the dance floor, right? That's right, dude. All right. When did you start writing your own music? When I was just uh, leaving the Bossman, uh, Dick Wagner. Uh, I was in his apartment one night, and this was after a gig that we had played. And then we drove back to Saginaw to his place. It's about two or three o'clock in the morning, and we're playing our electric guitars without being plugged in. And you know they're very soft, right? And we're be- being soft. And he's showing me some chord inversions because I'm I'm the the perpetual student. I'm learning all the time. So he's showing me. And I, I enjoyed playing music with him because he was such a pro and such so confident in what he did. And he wrote all these songs. I said, Wagner, you have written all, you know, hundreds of songs. And, and I love the way you write. He said, I said, but, you know, you just, what do you got a well that you're dipping into? And he says, no, dude. He says, you got that in you. And I said, I do. And he says, yeah, man. He says, you got a creative spark and you, you can write music. I said, I can. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I stayed up. He went to bed. I stayed up and I wrote Heartbreaker that night. Wow. Yeah, man. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I want to come back to some stuff, but that wasn't on Grand Funk's first album. That ended up on the second LP. Why, so why was there a delay in putting that on the LP? Well, it, it was just the songs that we wanted to come across with, and we wanted to come across with more uh, up-tempo stuff. Okay. Yeah. That makes, um, makes total sense. And I know that you and, and Don... We're in, uh, you know, we're playing with Terry Clark in the pack. And how did you meet uh, Mel? How did he's from Question Mark and the Mysterions, right? Yes. Okay. So how how did you guys? How did you meet up with him? Well, Mel and I went to school together. Okay. We rode dirt bikes together. <laughs> we smoked pot together. We did all those boy things, right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we played music together. And he was a heck of a bass player. And they, uh, Question Mark and the Mysterians were practicing up at the Delta Promotions in Bay City, where Don and I were sitting in the waiting room, uh, waiting to get in to talk with uh, George Kehoe, the guy who was uh, running the, the show. Okay. And, um, and we heard through the wall, because it's a rehearsal facility, we heard the bass. You know, the, you can always hear that low end. Oh, and yeah. I said, whoever playing that bass right there, Brewer, that, that boy can play bass. So when they took a break, Mel walks out and I went, Oh shit, it's Mel. (laughs) (laughs) I told him, I said, dude, man, we are putting together a three piece band. We're going to put together a three piece band and we don't want anybody that's married in the band. And, uh, so because of the last band got broke up by the two guys 
wives that were married, they they threatened to divorce the <laughs> the keyboard player and the <laughs> and the guitar player oh, wow. because they're two weeks late getting home from Boston area. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah, really late. <laughs> yeah, that's and, that's late. Yeah, and there was no cell phones. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, nope. They were wondering if we were dead or alive. <laughs> God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Mel agreed to he because he was ready to leave question mark of the mysterious. I guess he had wrecked one of the vans or something <laughs> and uh, he needed to just make a clean break. He needed to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the band was always uh, designed to be a three piece then. Yes. When now when did you start I know you you started singing after you guys fired Terry, but were you singing beforehand? Was singing always something that you did? Uh, we sang background. And and then uh, there's a couple of songs in the set that I would sing. Okay. But yeah. growing up, when you were learning to play guitar, was that something that you, were always, that you were interested in doing when you were just getting into music? Not until I hurt myself and couldn't okay. play any more ball because I, I loved to hear my name called out on that loudspeaker, dude. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Yeah, man. That was Farner number 66 in on the tackle. <laughs> I'd be prancing, man. I just, ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you started singing and playing guitar at, at the same time, and that's pretty impressive. Well, it was a little bit of a task at first because you know, singing uh, one rhythm and playing another rhythm, I was having a hard time with that. And I was asking my uncle Woody, did he know anything that would help me uh, in, you know, getting past the, that barrier? And he says, yes. He said, sit down right there across the table. I'm in his dining room. I said it. And he puts a newspaper across the table from me so I have to read it upside down and backwards. He said, I want you to read this, just the large print, just the, the headings on these paragraphs. I just want you to read the block letters like that, but I want you to read every page. You get done with that one, turn the next one. Read this entire paper that way. And then he says, and do it one more time, just two times through that and let me know when you're done. So I did. And I was getting, man, I could just zip right along, man. Yeah. I started, you know, because it takes using your right and left hemisphere to switch that shit around. Yeah. And that's what it takes to get you to sing one rhythm and play another. And I didn't realize wow. until, until my uncle Woody said, okay, come over here. He put a J45 Gibson in my hand, his, his guitar. Nice. He says, now play that song because I was having uh, trouble with uh, Nadine, the song Nadine. Oh, yeah. I yeah. said, I can play it, but I and I can sing it, but I can't play it and sing it. But man, I sat down, dude. I played and sang that song and I went, holy shit, I've got it. I've got it. <laughs> and, and I've been reading the newspaper upside down and backwards ever since. <laughs> And looking in my rear view mirror, man, you know, you see and stuff backwards. I'm always reading it, just staying brushed up on it. Wow. Because that was an important part, dude, of me crossing over and getting over that hurdle to be able to achieve uh, the success that we 
achieved. That's really, I never would have thought of that trick to gain that skill. That's amazing to me. Yeah. That's brilliant. Country, country trick. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, those are the best. And it worked. And I know this is a story that, that a lot of people know. And there goes my dog. Somebody has parked right in front of my house and my dog is going ape shit right now. So this is good. That's part of their job, dude. Yeah. Oh, I'm not mad good at him. Boss, just... Good job. <laughs> <laughs> good, good boy, Hammond. Uh, now they drove. I don't know. I don't know what the hell they were doing. Now they just zoomed off. All right. Well, I, that's that's weird. All right. Well, if if we suddenly go dark, you know why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> somebody was somebody was talking to me. All right. The band name Grand Funk Railroad. How did that come about? There's an actual railway system that runs through uh, Ontario, Canada, Michigan, and Ohio, and it is called the Grand Trunk and Western Railroad. So it's just a play off the name Grand Trunk and Western. Okay. So Terry wrote a song, Grand Funk Railroad. He said, why don't you guys name your band the name of my song, Grand Funk Railroad? We said, okay. (laughs) <laughs> you guys are just so awesome this is the this is where things get so interesting for me because it it seems throughout the entire history and of the the band it's more like the grand funk roller coaster because oh yeah there's just <laughs> so terry gets fired and then you guys play for a little while then you start this other band then terry's back in the picture as a as a manager Yes. That's, I mean, you guys must be the nicest guys, in the, or at least you at this point. <laughs> like, must be like the nicest guy on the planet. <laughs> How did he get back into the picture? I mean, was it, did you guys approach him or did he approach you? Don Brewer kept in contact with him. And because he had those attorneys there in New York City that were doing the legal work for the Atlanta Pop Festival, uh, he figured it was a way of getting his band on that bill. And so they made him a special offer of uh, reduced rate on their legal fee if, if this unknown band from Michigan could open the show. You know, okay. so and we, nobody had ever heard of Grand Funk Railroad before, and we didn't have any records. We were just a garage band from Flint, Michigan, who got this lucky break, dude, that uh, those attorneys were doing the legal work. And after our extravaganza from Michigan to Atlanta, Georgia, with our with our friend's borrowed window van, he had a Chevy window van with a six-cylinder in it. Oh, boy. Yeah. And- and he lent us his driver, Jimmy, and we took all the equipment in a U-Haul trailer headed to Florida. And this was before I-75 was finished. Oh, so God. we had to take back roads. Yeah. And we're going along and it's and it's just breaking daylight. And my eyes are opening up and I'm I'm looking up and I see this sign says I-75 and a big arrow to the right. I said, hey, Jimmy, I-75 goes to the right. He, he just turned really hard and rolled that trailer down through the ditch with our equipment in it. Oh, my God. Um, we had to open the doors on that trailer, unload all the equipment, and then 
right the thing, put it back on its wheels, and then we put all the equipment back in there. We're kind of nursing it down the road and uh, a little faster, a little faster, because we're on the shoulder of the road. We didn't want to take any chances. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this tire passes us. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the wheel came off on the driver's side, came off that trailer and passed us. Oh, my gosh. And so we had to run over and and retrieve that wheel, and we took two lug nuts off the other side to hold it on. We got it threaded back on there, and we just creeped down the edge of the expressway to the next <laughs> exit, which just happened to have U-Haul trailers. Oh. So we sucker in wow. and got another one and w- was pedal to the metal all the way to Atlanta. And then when we got there, uh, we had to assess the damage that was done to the equipment yeah. when it rolled. And there was a lot of damage. The transformers had ripped completely off the chassis of the amplifiers oh. and the fires were severed. The, when we got there to Atlanta, and this is what was cool about that time, Mark, it was not just our two roadies putting shit together. It was roadies from every band that was there. They went, oh, man, they need help. Look, their shit's wow. falling apart. You know, so That's they got us up on that stage. And, and I just, I really feel like the community that we had back then, that it scared people because we were doing something with it. And yeah. we were having a good time. And there was a lot of us. And... Uh, but it was all about the love, peace and love, man. It wasn't about anything else about, you know, killing somebody or, you know, some violent shit. It was all peace and love, man. So to watch that, that was part of my education, you know, that when a down and you think, Oh my God, how are we ever going to do this, man? Don't give up because you know, these angels show up and they start soldering shit back together. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. That was a hell of a show. I mean, all right, first of all, you guys, it's just, and this was your first show ever, right? Yes. Since it's Grand Funk Railroad, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, Led Zeppelin, Paul Butterfield, Johnny Winter. I mean, oh my. Ten years after. Ten year, and this was a 69? So, 69. so, so many of these bands and artists are still in their infancy. That yeah. was an, inc- that had to be an incredible atmosphere. Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, oh, dude. God. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that just blows my mind. That's an, an amazing. Yeah, it blew my mind, buddy. So you you guys play your set and it's, from my understanding, it, you know, it, it was amazing. You know, it was like, they didn't want us to leave the stage, Mark. <sighs> they really didn't want us to go anyplace. The whole place got up and was dancing. That's awesome. 185,000 people were dancing. And we, and we were rocking that place. So uh, they moved us. The next day, we went on at like 7 p.m. And then the last night, we went on at 11 under the lights and the people just, man, they loved us. The sound off that first album, and I'm imagining the, in the, the very first gig you're going, is a huge shift 
from the pack. I mean, you've got you've got like this blue cheer meets Black Sabbath sound going on, the, on that first LP, and it's incredible. Was there a progression in that sound, or did you just guys just like look? This is what's coming up. This is this is the sound I want. I want to go completely heavy, something um, totally different. Or was there a, a gradual progression as you were forming Grand Funk Railroad? Well, the amplifiers that we used, the West Amps, were made in Flint, Michigan. Okay. And before we were Grand Funk Railroad, I worked at West Labs, gluing cabinets together, putting fabric on, building amplifiers, soldering traces on the circuit boards. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, I knew about these amplifiers. And every time that we would have a break, we'd get a, like a 15 minute break every two hours. The, all the guys immediately rushed over and grabbed guitars and we start jamming. Oh, wow. For, yeah. For 15 minutes, it's, it's, it's a solid 15 minute jam. Boom. Back to work. <laughs> and That's crazy. I love that. It was really good for the, our morale. Well, it made us want to work more. Yeah. Cause I wanted one of those amps and you know, I wanted it take it home and have me an amp with two 15 inch JBL D one thirty speakers in it. And, and I got with a West Grandy head and uh, it was badass. I, the, the messenger guitar that I used uh, that is setting behind me on the Leslie back here. Oh, okay. That messenger, I traded um, this guy who was a sun amplifier representative, Bill Eberline. I traded him a mini bike with a three and a half horse Briggs and Stratton on it. <laughs> that guitar. That's a pretty good investment right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he wanted that mini bike in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> and you ended up with a, starting an amazing career with that guitar. I said it worked yep. out for you pretty well. It worked out good. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys had an incredible string of, of, of writing and album. I mean, you had two albums come out in 69. Uh, let's see. Uh, I said two, two studio albums in 69, a studio and a live album in 70, two studio albums in 71, one in 72, one in 73, and two in 74. That's exhausting for me just to say. Did you guys, I mean, did you feel that incredible pace or, or did you realize how prolific that was at the time or were you just playing and writing and just, let's just put it down when we can? Yeah, that's it. We did not have a clue as, as to how prolific that was, but it was coming, man. Every time I needed a song, it would just be there. Wow. And uh, pr I prayed for I'm your captain. I prayed uh, my now I lay me down to sleep prayers. Mm -hmm. And I put a yes on the end of my prayer. And I asked God to give me a song that would reach and touch the hearts of those that the creator wanted to get to. And I wrote the words in the middle of the night, but I'm always writing words. I, I wake up and write words all the time. If they're not necessarily songs. Okay. So I, I just kind of, went back to sleep, but I attained this state of consciousness that somewhere between heaven and earth and it's a suspended animation that we're in, in that conscious state. And, uh, I just wrote, I, 
if you tried to go back to the start and read it all over again, you'd screw it all up. You got to just stay where you're at and keep writing. Okay. And, and I, so I did, and I finished that thing and I felt like when I was done, I felt, Oh, now I can sleep my ass off. I, put the, <laughs> you know, I go back to sleep and I get up in the morning. I go up ha having coffee. I'm looking out at the horses in the pasture and, and I grab my guitar out of the corner of the kitchen and I'm sitting there playing. I went, bop, 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 doo -doo -doo. I went, wow, what the heck is that? That's very cool, that lick. And then I, I grabbed this C chord, this, this inversion that I'd, I'd never played this. And I just was studying my hand. I'm going, wow, okay, it's that one, that one. <laughs> that one. I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to lose this because it's chiming and it's, it's sounding beautiful to me. And, I, and just as I'm looking at my hand, I went, oh, those words. Maybe that's a song in the other room. And I went and grabbed those words, brought them in. I sat down, da, 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 da. I just started playing the song and I sang it the way it went down. I didn't change one word. Wow. I, I sang it the way I wrote it. And uh, as we went into to, uh, the upbeat show in Cleveland, Ohio, Tommy Baker, who was the band leader for the upbeat show, heard me playing the song as I was playing it for one of the gals there. And I said, and it goes like this. And he goes, man, that's a beautiful song. He says, are you going to record that? <clears throat> and I said, yes, we are. We're going to go in next week at Cleveland recording and put it down. And he says, man, when you get to that refrain on the end, just keep going and going and going and going over and over and over. And when you think you can't go another round, do 10 more, please. And, <laughs> and that'll give me enough time to put what I'm hearing. Cause I'm hearing very beautiful shit, man. And when Tommy Baker said he was hearing beautiful shit, he, I believed him, man. This guy was, this guy was a, a top musician. Wow. And, and he ended up writing all of that orchestration for Closer to Home and Loneliness. I saw James Brown fire his trumpet player on the spot because he blew a clam in this TV show. Yeah. And Tommy Baker's over there. And, and James said, Tommy, come here, play this part. Can you play that part? He said, yes, Mr. Brown, I can play that part. And he went over there and he blew it solid, man. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, yeah. wow. See, I, I love stories like that. This is just amazing. Right on. It's the real deal. So how often were you guys touring? I mean, was it, it sounds like you were touring constantly. All the time. If we weren't in the studio recording, we were on the road playing music. Wow. And unfortunately, you guys ended up getting screwed with a contract. I mean, from what I understand, you and, and CCR are like two of the, like the cautionary tales to, to tell young musicians to, to pay attention to. Yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the, the biggest mistake that most 
musicians make is we put our trust in people that because we haven't been in business, we don't know um, the business and, and enough to know that we need to have someone who represents us that does not even know who that manager is or his attorneys yeah. and even be related. And then you can have a good relationship. Yeah. But if there's any kind of knowledge like that, it's bad. It's going to go sour every time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a shame. I mean, you guys are kids, you know, what are you, you know, what are you going to do? You, you trusted people. Yep. Um, I still do Mark and I'm good. not going to stop just oh. because I got screwed by a bunch of assholes. I mean, seriously, it's not on me. No, uh, it's on them. Yeah. It's on. Yeah, man. I set myself free. I won't let that be a, a thing with me. Good. Oh man. Cause I, I heard, and, and tell me if this is true that at one point they, they even tried to confiscate your gear before a show. Yeah. Yeah. It was at Madison square garden. Oh my God. We were doing three nights sold out and we, we raised a bunch of money for the Phoenix house organization, New York city, which was a drug rehab place that uh, we went over and paid them a visit and saw what they were doing. And we said, yes, we want to be involved with it. We want to help you start more Phoenix houses. And with the, with the money from the concerts, they started seven more Phoenix houses in New York city. Oh, wow. Really helped. And I'm proud of that, that we were able to help hundreds of people to get off the shit. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. That's those, those, uh, the, the deputies and those attorneys yeah. who showed up at Madison square garden to confiscate our equipment. It, as soon as they said they were going to take the equipment, they were confiscating it. Our roadies who looked like Vikings, I kid you not. <laughs> over and they're looking down at these cops and and our guys are just like you said what you're going hey you're going off this stage right now these boys are playing a charity for phoenix house you assholes get out of here <laughs> <laughs> and they they did they just quietly left the stage yeah and then after our gig they confiscated the equipment <laughs> god you have these this wild sounds that, that come out of your guitar and the, on these albums, what kind of effects are you using at this time? Cause you, you've got this craziness going on. And I, I can, the example that I wanted, I'll pull out is locomotion because that song has been around before when you guys recorded, it had already been around for a long time. Yes. And you just breathe this whole new life into it. And got this amazing solo out of it that's just bonkers.
hell's going on with that? It's just what happens when you're doing your solo and Todd Rundgren walks out into the studio <laughs> and he walks over to the Echoplex and grabs the tape head and starts going from one end to the other, back and forth. And he's got this wild ass look in his eyes, brother. And he's going, ah, <laughs> as the guitar is eating itself. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy but you yeah. know you've also do some really cool stuff like these great volume swells that I, I love that this it's unique i really haven't heard too much like that before or since it's just it sounds i mean it sounds like you it's it's incredible thank you how is it different working with uh rundgren and frank zappa because I imagine those two guys are completely different in the studio. Yes. Yeah. Ron Grun was, he would kick his feet back, you know, up on the console. He'd lean back. He, he's reading the book. We're out there pouring our hearts out into the song. He's like reading and, you know, he, every once in a while he'll look out. Okay. You got, yeah, you guys are doing good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And he, whatever he did, it was just a natural inclination. I asked him one time in the studio, I said, uh, that guitar that's in the right side, I said, it needs, to me, it needs a little, like, 3.5K added to it just to cut that, that high mid. And he says, okay, but let me show you something, Mark. He says, instead of adding 3.5K so that you can hear it, let's solo the guitar. Now let's pull down the frequencies that are preventing you from hearing it. This way you're not introducing more noise to that mix. Wow. More gain, more noise yep. every time. And man, I, it was like... Bingo, the light went on and went, oh, yeah. Thank you, Todd Rundgren. Really? I appreciate that. That's like learning how to read the newspaper upside down and backwards. Yes, sir, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> then the, the band breaks up and you make a solo album, which is really cool. I like that solo album a lot. Going, I listened to it for the, I'll be honest with you, for the first time this week, and I, I really enjoyed it. All right. One yeah, solo album come out in 77, but then the band reunited, right? I had one in 77, one in 78. Okay. And we, we reunited in 81. Okay, okay. So this is what I'm saying about how it's like the roller coaster because it's... Yeah. That that didn't... How long did that last? It didn't seem to last very long, that reunion, did it? No, because our... Well, one reason is our manager died, Andy Cavalieri died in his New York City apartment. He was painting 
a, an old antique bed that he had purchased. And uh, his brother walked in there and there he was with a paintbrush still in his hand, laying next to the bed. Wow. Gone. Oh my yeah. gosh. And I was in Hong Kong at the time. I was doing some uh, promotions for PV Musical Instrument uh, Corporation. And uh, we were doing, you know, all around the world, we were doing clinics in, in uh, Japan and Singapore and uh, Hong Kong. We were, we were just getting ready to move to Australia with this whole thing when we got the news that Andy had died. And then, of course, I had to cut my trip short and uh, come home. And we tried to get uh, everything that pertained to Grand Funk from the executor of the estate who wouldn't give us shit. It wouldn't give us nothing at all. I'm telling you, it was just like, oh, man. Every time we turned, somebody's smacking us with a sledgehammer. So we just said, okay, let that go. You know, the band's breaking up. So until 96, we were on our own and you know i was touring and doing my thing and i don't know what they were doing but uh we got back together in 96 we were supposed to be together for two years before i would go back and uh, uh i would do two years of just nothing but grand funk okay but then after that i told them i'm gonna do my own solo gigs too because i've got a an audience out here that i've developed in the past you know 20 years here and uh, and I want to be able to play music to them, and um, and I go places that the Grand Funk wouldn't go and couldn't go. Okay, but I can go on my own. So, uh, anyways, uh, the uh, third year, ninety eight, six, seven, and eight, ninety eight, Don came to my room after a gig one one night, and I was putting in extra time on this Grand Funk thing because the first year was we were with punch Andrews who was Bob Seeger's manager and punch didn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He really didn't do a good job managing us. We only had 14 play dates that whole summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like, man, that we're not going to do anything playing this little bit. Yeah. So we, uh, moved on we got with David Fishoff who did, uh, the whole Bosnia thing, he, he was responsible for that. And we, we did put a wing on a hospital, a children's hospital in wow. Sarajevo. So, uh, with the money and we thank God that we were able to do that. But then when Don came to my room one night and he said, we need to all sign our individual ownership of the trademark into the corporation where it'll have a protective umbrella or to those effects. And I didn't finish high school and he went to law school. So I figured he knew what he was talking about. I figured he was looking out for the best interest of the band. Yeah. I was naive. I was gullible and I got taken advantage of because uh, when they voted me out of the corporation, I'm thinking, how can you vote the guy that wrote 92% of the songs and yeah. sang out of the corporation. How does that work? Well, they did it. And just like a lot of other phony bands that go out and they use the name, but it's really not the name. It's, it's not the band that, that formed that name. Yep. It's the ones who conned the other members 
into signing away that name and the majority then, you know, they get to use it and, and put the, you know, put the bad thumb on you. But yeah. even, even though there was all that effort to try and squelch me out of making a living or, you know, even using the, the name that I am largely uh, responsible for making, you know, that music. Yeah. They, they, they couldn't do it because I finally got with a manager who says, we need to stop using any, anything that's related to Grand Funk Railroad. I said, how the hell are we going to do that? He said, Mark Farner's American Band. I went, are you kidding me? He says, let's try it. So we the, hired an attorney. We made the application and got the Mark Farner's American Band trademark. Awesome. And then Don and Mel sued me, trying to get me to not use it. They they went all the way to federal court to the last seven o'clock at night, keeping this guy. And and finally, he just, uh, uh, we won. I walked out of that. And uh, even though I had to spend a lot of money on the attorneys, I brought my attorneys from um, L.A., yeah, and uh, had to use a Michigan attorney too. So I'm pl- I'm paying you know double there. But then to add insult to injury, I paid one third of their attorney fees to sue me. Oh <laughs> my god! Because I'm still a shareholder in the corporation. <laughs> oh, that's. Yeah. But oh. even as sour as that sounds. I tell you what, brother Mark, I would get back with those guys on a stage for the sake of the fans, because I'm a music fan. And when all the Beatles were still sucking air, I'm thinking you dipshits. Why don't you just bury the hatchet and get out there for us? Just for the fans. Don't forget about you guys. Yeah. Do it for us. Do it for us. And so this is my, take and this every time i have a corporate meeting every time i have an opportunity to speak it i speak it why don't we give the people what they want they want to see the band they want to see the real deal yeah they don't want to see a tribute band i don't care how good the tribute band is it's not the real band exactly and you have the opportunity to get the whole band together it's not like it's 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 like one of you is gone and you can't do it i mean it's it's right feasible uh, yep. This all kind of happened after you died twice, right? Yes. What? How did you die twice? I had what they call a bundle branch block where this branch of nerves did not receive the signal to go. And so my heart just. Eh. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my and, God. Yep. And when I had to come back into the bone suit. I came kicking and screaming because once you leave this thing, you realize who you are and you realize you're back where you started from before you hit earth. Yeah. And you know, immediately, and you know, all things, you know, everything. I even had the, I knew the purpose of the earth years in that, state of being oh wow in that tense of being I mean, you know all things and there's no debt dude what ruins the human existence is debt consciousness i agree and it, 
because it's accumulative and it's sneaky, it, it starts piling up on you and you're not keeping track of this because you're not, nobody has directed your attention to this is what it is. It's just on you and, and you have to perform this. And I'm not talking just financial debt. I'm talking unfulfilled expectations of people on your ass oh. and they'll put you in debt. And if it's somebody in the family and they call somebody and they get those people to, to call you, what are you doing? Uh, how the hell did you find out about you know, it? Like, <laughs> we are moved around by debt. And, and the, what's missing is the forgiveness because that's really what love is all about. Yes. Love is forgiveness. It is forgiveness embodied. And I know that. And so I try to give that uh, because the word says to, to give with the same measure you expect to be forgiven with. Yeah. You forgive with that same measure. I'm thinking that's a damn good answer right there. Yes, you it know? is not easy. No, it is not Mark. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the right answer. Yes. But and nothing, do the right answer is never the easy one. That's right. How did you get involved in Ringo Starr's all-star band? They called uh, David Fishoff, who was doing Ringo's tours, a personal friend of mine, you know, rock and roll fantasy camp. Okay. And he asked me if I would like to do a Ringo tour. And I said, yeah, man, absolutely. You kidding me? And then I got a call from Ringo the very next day from Monaco. And he told me, he says, I'm not the drummer on this tour. I said, well, who's drumming? He says, my boy, Zach. And I went, all right rock and roll yeah that's awesome man because yeah. that, that that just sounds like a lot of fun it was a blast man it was really fun it was great to learn from randy backman him showing me the power g yeah. showing me towards the way that he made things and, and we gave each other you know some some leeway to play things and and he even gave me like a little solo thing in this this thing we were doing we just kind of made it up and uh, it was good it was really good because our hearts were in it you know yeah. and, and your hearts are in it and it's together man everybody kind of leans an ear in there and go oh yeah and and to play with billy preston oh. you know virtuoso he's doing his part mark he's playing his part he's singing and he's got the bible over here reading and doing all this stuff I don't know how that I didn't practice oh upside down backwards, <laughs> <laughs> but John Entwistle standing next to John on that stage. And, and yeah. you know, he played so loud. It threw my equilibrium off. Whoa. I kid you not. I had to move away from his rig because he would play so loud. Wow. And that's what killed his hearing in the first place. And Ringo would turn around and say, turn that damn thing down. It <laughs> 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 yeah, poor John, he was a sweet spirited man. And his girlfriend, Diane, oh my gosh. Every night after the gig, we were there with Hillary Gerard, who was Ringo's uh, personal friend and manager at the time with John Entwistle and his girlfriend and, and they were drinking, uh, Remy Martin. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There it is. 
And uh, and I stayed away from it because uh, that that stuff is too strong for me. Not a cognac guy. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm more like uh, Paps Blue Ribbon. Oh yeah, they go PBR. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or Carling's Black Label. <laughs> <laughs> so when did, when did you start? When did you make the move to Parker guitars? In '96. Okay, I love those things. Those are gorgeous guitars. Yeah, I I got mine from Ken Parker. I had an operation that where they fused. Uh, C6 and C7, the vertebrae yeah, in right, my neck. Yeah, right down, yeah. They had to go through the front to get to the back. And the doc, when I, uh, you know, the next day I was waking up out of this stuff and he came in, he says, well, now I got to tell you, you can't play, there's no more Telecasters, no more Stratocasters, no more Les Pauls, oh, no more Les Paul Juniors, no Flying Vs. I, he starts naming all, I said, you are killing yeah. me, dude. You have, you've named everything that I'm playing. What are you doing? And he says, nothing more than five pounds. So when I was with Ringo and we were in Tokyo, I went over to Korg. I always go over and see what they've got. I've been a Korg endorser for many, many years. And uh, I always like to, you know, play around with their stomp boxes, see what they've got, because you never know what's going to inspire you yeah. to write that hit song. So I'm over there and they, they're playing, you know, bringing me all the stuff. And he says, have you ever uh, played a Parker fly? And I said, what is a Parker fly? I don't know what a Parker fly is, dude. And he goes and he reaches in the other room and he, and he pulls out this fly and he hands it over to me. And when I took a hold of it, my arm went, I went, what? <laughs> this is so light. And uh, so after my operation, my mind went right back to that Parker and I called Ken directly. And I told him I, I needed a, a Parker because I wanted to play, uh, you know, something five pounds and I want to play U S made instruments. Yeah. And there, when he was in Cambridge, they made over 30,000 good instruments in 10 years that they were in business there in Cambridge. Wow. Those are the good flies and night flies, but uh, the ones after that did not have the fit and finish the way those first 30,000 instruments did. Oh, okay. And, yeah. I played a couple of them that were just, wow. So what are you playing now? Cause I, what is, I see this, that one over your left shoulder, that wood finished one. That, yeah, that, that looks is crazy. Yeah. That was uh, at uh, PV. They had a guitar called a mystic, which was that shape. Okay. And I said, well, what I would, I have envisioned playing that guitar, but I would like stripes. You know, so I put the black stripes, the racing stripes on there. Okay. And I put uh, the three pickups, I put active pickups in there. So it takes nine volts and then up in that front horn, you got individual pickup switch on, off, and out of phase. Oh. On, off, and out of phase. So, so you could just make it sound any way you wanted to, really, That's seriously. Awesome. And uh, so I went to Hartley, Hartley PV, and uh, this was like after we had put it together and they're making the guitar. And uh, I said, you know, this is a half 
half PV, half Farner. I said, you know, it's both of our designs, my electronics, my racing stripes and what have you. I said, what do you think of calling it a peener? <laughs> he, 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 he just couldn't believe it. I, said. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's the best. So, needless to say, it was just a joke, you know. <laughs> but he opened his top desk drawer and he showed me his new nine millimeter uh Ruger that he had just got. We changed the subject real fast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So speaking of that, you the guy that taught Frank Zappa how to shoot a three fifty seven. Forty four Magnum. Forty four Magnum. Oh, I got the I heard the story wrong. Yeah, he wanted to shoot he he said you well, know he had told me he never had shot a, a weapon before. And I said, so do you want to shoot a handgun? And he says, if you got a dirty Harry, I said, yes, I do. Nice. <laughs> he said, you stay here. I'll go get it. <laughs> <laughs> and, but when I went and got it, I picked up 44 special rounds out of my ammo room mm -hmm. because I didn't want to, you know, bowl him over right. with the oil and the, the, you know, I wanted him to enjoy it. Yeah. And he enjoyed shooting 44 specials out of a model 29 Smith and Wesson. And he, he, you know, we, I said, we'll put these targets. He says, I don't want to shoot a target, man. He says, I want to shoot the cans like they do in the movies. I said, <laughs> okay, we'll put some beer cans out here for you. <laughs> you put them on the hill and he draws down and, and he did exactly what I told him to do. And he squeezed that trigger and hit that beer can dead nuts right nice. in the center. And he's going, did you see that? And he whips around. We're all ducking, man. Frank, gun safety, gun safety. Oh, yeah, 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 he says. <laughs> oh, my. Exciting moment. That is a, exciting. That's incredible. I've, I've kept you for a while, so I want to ask you a couple things about what you're doing lately. You've got a new DVD coming out. Yeah. It, From Chile with Love. Ah, okay. So, and does that support the Veterans, uh, the Veterans Support Foundation? Yes, brother. $3 from each DVD that sells for $14.99. It's a great deal. Yeah. 16, 16 uh, live recorded tracks, two bonus videos, and five bonus songs oh, wow. that have never been released like this before. So, mm. yeah. And th my wife, Lisa, and I, believe so much in the Veterans Support Foundation because I've been working with these guys ever since we did the 25th anniversary of the, the monument, the Vietnam Veterans Monument in yeah. D.C., the wall, where I and the band, we played an entire show for the Vietnam veterans and not just the U.S. veterans, but our Canadian brothers and sisters, the Vietnam veterans were there as well. Yeah. And that, you know, just being involved with them and knowing their organization, knowing that these guys are real deal veterans who are serving veterans, who are helping veterans to readjust when they come home from war, they advocate for them in front of the government board, you know, yeah. so that they get, they get what they were contracted for and they get paid. And, and, uh, so many of them return with uh, a limb or two or maybe all four missing. Yeah. Uh, so they, they really need help. And 
we found that these guys, there's not a better organization uh, that I know of out there that does what these guys do and they got it all covered and they really got heart. They don't take any salary. Nobody gets paid for anything. All the money goes to help our vets. Oh, that's awesome. Brothers and sisters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Exactly. Exactly. And the least we can do is, is take care of them when they come home. You got it, buddy. It's the absolute least we can do. Yeah. And Amen. you're also, you're still writing new music. You've got a, a beautifully shot video for the song Never and Always. who did the video in Chile, Carlos Toro, uh, he heard the song and he emailed me and he said, oh, I, I see a video when I hear this song. I see a video. Wow. He said, can I put it together for you? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yes, <laughs> brother. He, and he's such a creative, uh, very uh, expressive sensitive human being he, he's a he's all about love and his, and his crew is the same way and we work good together uh so that and if people go to buy this they go to markfarner.com to buy it uh, but while they are uh, waiting for the actual dvd to arrive you can download the rock and roll soul video free from markfarner.com it's a free download awesome and they can get a taste of what this live concert is going to be like when they finally get their uh, DVD, because it's taken from uh, the, the concert there at uh, Teatro Caupalican in Santiago, Chile. And, and it, it represents the music that they're going to hear, but it also puts some Americana in there. And there's a, there is a Camaro. Yes. Uh, and it's got the the American flag over the top. I mean, and and the uh, Craftsman stars and stripes tools. It's very Americana, but it's all shot in Chile. Wow! And they did a very good job of it. Yes, they did. They did. Tell me, <laughs> now who are you playing with? Who's in the band? From Memphis, Tennessee, Hubert Crawford, uh, and I met Hubert. Years and years ago, in 1997, I think it was. Okay. I met him at a Waffle House. <laughs> the Awful Waffle. The Awful House. Yeah. yeah. And he was playing drums with James Brown at the time. Oh, wow. We were in town doing, and now this is... Uh, Oh, God. I'm trying to think of Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery, Alabama. I lived an hour and a half away from there. Awesome. I lived way well, down south, southeast, southeast Alabama for almost 10 years. Awesome. Well, this, this they had their street festival, street music, and yep. it was War, Grand Funk, and James Brown. Wow. Dude, 
it was killer, killer, and killer. Man. Man. And my son, Jason, was on the road with us at that time. And he said to me, as we are leaving and heading back to Michigan in the bus, he looks over, he says, Dad, I think Hubert's going to be playing music with you. I said, what? <laughs> what? <Yeah>. <laughs> and <laughs> then, man, it happened. And he knows all the songs because Don Brewer was his drum god. So he knows every song, wow. every lick. And uh, it's like, yeah. Serendipity. Pinch, pinch me. And I'm using, uh, you know, Hubert's there from, from Memphis. But then I got two guys from Detroit, Bernie Palo, who I met uh, when I was playing with Alto Reed, doing some things. We did some shows for people doing, you know, all-star bands with uh, Dave Mason and Felix Cavalieri and Rick Derringer. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, Mitch Ryder. You know, we do these all-star things. And Bernie's playing a keyboard for all this stuff. So Detroit boy. And so when it came time for us to uh, get a, a new keyboard player, Bernie was the guy. And Paul Randolph, Paul, I met when I was doing the... Alice Cooper sessions uh, in uh, at the Rust Belt Studios in Detroit. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, Paul was playing bass and doing background vocals, and I, I I liked his bass playing. I liked where he was coming from. I liked the sound of his solid, and I liked the way he followed instructions because Bob Ezrin is a very intense. Let me say that again: intense. Yes, yeah. he's a producer. And yeah, I love his shit, but he is an intense guy. And I experienced that and I love that about him. And he can pull things out of you that you don't even know exist. <laughs> <laughs> He's intense. And then so when we got in playing, you know, we played and I'm playing with Johnny Badanjic, uh, you know, who's on the, the drums and Wayne Kramer from the MC5 yeah. doing guitar parts and just being together with these Detroit, you know, these Michigan people, it was just good. It was really good. And now Paul is in my band and uh, playing bass, and he's going to be uh, this weekend. We're all going to Ohio on the 15th. We're playing down there, and uh, it's going to be our first gig in over a year, Mark. Man, wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping you guys can hit the road and, and come. I, I live about an hour and a half outside of D.C., so... I'm hoping you guys can come my way because I would love to catch the show. Yes. Definitely. Now, so where can people follow you? Is, is there social media presence and, and uh, that they can follow and get some more information? Markfarner.com will get you to, to where I'm going to be playing around the country to, yeah. to the live shows and will uh, get you to over to the uh, site to buy Mark Farner's American Band from Chile with Love. And thank you in advance for helping our brothers and sisters, our GIs who come home and they need some love. Let's give them some love. Exactly. Mark, thank you so much for spending all this time with me. And man, these stories were great. I've have, I, I could literally sit here all night and, and, and listen to more of them, but I, <laughs> I've got dinner somewhere and I know you've got yeah, stuff to do. I, I'm just thinking that shit's going to be cold. <laughs> I know. I know. Thank you so much. I've, I've seriously had a blast. This has been wonderful. Yeah, yeah. 
You got it, my friend. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.